Hi everyone, you're listening to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Alison Mitchell, a practicing naturopath, and you can find me on naturopathnsw.com.au. These podcasts will feature discussions on various health conditions, health tips, and nutrition from a naturopathic perspective. Sometimes it's just me, sometimes I'm interviewing guests. All the time, I hope to share with you information on health and wellbeing with the aim to empower and educate. Please remember that all information is general and not a specific recommendation that replaces consulting with a practitioner. Please talk to your healthcare practitioner before undertaking any changes to your treatment regime. Hi everyone and welcome back to a new episode of the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about pain. Recently I was a speaker at the Wise Woman Gathering in Wiseman's Ferry which is a wonderful event and this year I spoke on chronic pain and inflammation and the drivers that affect that. Now it was a really well received talk but unfortunately I didn't actually get to finish everything so my plan then was to convert that into some podcasts but due to the nature of podcasts I'm actually able to expand this information and split it into a few sections so I expect that over the next few podcasts you'll be hearing me talking a lot about chronic pain and inflammation so let's get into it chronic pain is something that I see a lot of in clinic and hence one of the reasons why I started to speak about it at this talk. It's something that I see a lot of because I work alongside osteopaths but also because it's something that's actually incredibly common. And the issue with chronic pain and chronic inflammation is that it's actually very poorly dealt with in Australia but also all throughout the world. There is just not enough support, not enough of a holistic team approach when we're dealing with these sorts of issues and so therefore people led towards taking pain medications long term that have a whole host of side effects and issues. This can be a big big problem because the side effects end up causing more health issues that add to the economic burden on, on the country but also significantly worsening the condition that the person is experiencing. And It's a really sad situation because you do see people who are in chronic pain become less and less able to actually work and function and so they develop a higher requirement on these pain medications and then therefore they're actually then stuck in this vicious cycle that leads to shortened mortality and significantly lessened quality of life. So there are things that we can do about it and when we're talking about this it's a about a team approach not just you know seeing a naturopath who who has experience in this matter but looking at all of the different factors that actually feed into why someone's experiencing pain for longer than they should be and so that's what I want to talk about. So let's start by defining what is pain? Well this can vary depending on who you ask. Is it an unpleasant sensation? Is it a warning signal that something is wrong? Is it a reminder that you know you are broken and you have to take care of that particular area? Essentially what it is is a highly effective and sophisticated protective messaging system that's performed by our brain which reads messages from receptors in our tissues called nociceptors and it also reads a huge amount of cognitive data. This cognitive data is a combination of things such as the context of what has just happened, where we are and and how we've dealt with this instance before, our expectations of the pain and sensory data such as what we can see of the injury. So the more we are given the message that we are in danger, the more the pain signal will be turned up. So from this you can probably gather that pain occurs in the brain but it's not just in the brain. The brain takes a lot of cues from other messaging systems in the rest of our body, such as our immune system and our gut and our nervous system. So essentially, pain is a complex danger signal that is attempting to get the body to protect itself. So a few examples of this. When I was doing some research, I was looking at some TED Talks and I was... I found this really great story that this guy was telling. So I'm going to relay that to you now. 
a man was walking through the bush and he felt something nick his ankle and he thought to himself you know it's just a scratch from a twig because he was wearing thongs and, and that sort of stuff has happened to him before you know so he he feels hardly any pain and he keeps on walking but later uh oh he you know he loses some feeling in his limbs and passes out it turns out it was actually a snake bite which made him quite seriously ill for a while but thankfully he did recover now a few years later same man is walking through the bush and he feels something on his ankle but this time he experiences it as an excruciating pain and he thinks surely oh, i've been bitten by another snake this is an emergency so he's screaming out and he's grabbing his ankle but nope, it was actually a twig that nicked him this time. But because his brain remembered past events, the context, you know, being in the bush, that made his brain do the best it could to protect him. And that was to look at your ankle, cry out for help, because something serious has just happened. So another example, think of how children will respond to hurting themselves depending on the way the adults around them act. You know, they fall over and the adults pick them up and say something like, oh, no, you fell over, but it's okay, you're fine, look, you're all good. And the child feels fine. And in another instance, the adult might make a big deal out of it and gasp and, you know, get really sort of worried about the fall. And the child will actually feel more pain as a result of it because they're interpreting the adult's response as a way to satiate, uh, as a way to... Um, sort of you know worsen their danger signals and similarly um, doing things that will help to fix the problem can satiate those danger signals such as putting on a band-aid on the area or you know giving it a kiss or for adults this can be the act of actually going and seeking help you might have experienced this yourself but if you ever go to a, or have booked in for an appointment to actually deal with the pain it always tends to be better the pain levels are better on that actual day and when you go to the appointment and that has happened to me personally it's also happened to me professionally when people come to see me um, so they say well I've been getting a lot of pain but it's actually not so bad today and that is just you know again another example of how the the brain is going oh goodness you know we're do we're doing something about this it's not so bad danger signals reducing pain signals reducing so you know it's just such a complex messaging system and there are so many things that feed into it so pain can be categorized into acute and chronic pain so what actually is chronic pain well, technically, it is thought that it is pain that lasts longer than 12 weeks. Some will say six months. But a better way of viewing it is pain that extends beyond the expected period of healing. Acute pain comes on suddenly. It is caused by something specific and it doesn't usually last longer than six months. And it goes away uh, once the cause of the pain is removed. Chronic pain can continue after the illness or the injury is gone and can also occur without previous injury. It's often linked with conditions such as chronic headache, fibromyalgia, polymyalgia rheumatica, arthritis, back pain, cancer or nerve pain. So in this podcast, I'm mostly going to be talking about chronic pain and to understand it and help it, we need to look at the complex factors that are actually feeding into those danger signals of the brain. And to do this, we essentially need to rewire the brain and the nervous system and minimize any other danger inputs that are coming from the rest of the body. So because of that, I'm going to be talking about inflammation. Inflammation is a process that occurs in the body as a response to pain, but it can also cause pain. Inflammation, when present in normal amounts, is a healing agent, but for many people it gets out of control like a bushfire, and this can cause chronic pain as well as contribute to many other conditions such as heart disease, depression, cancer, diabetes, and it can also speed up the aging process. This process is called inflammaging. In order to address this, one needs a holistic care team that looks at properly managing pain medication, the balance of the physical body, the emotional state, and teaching mindfulness techniques, working on diet and lifestyle, and also supporting you with the use of natural remedies that help to address the underlying causes of the pain and inflammation.
So, some unpleasant facts about pain for you. Chronic pain affects at least 20% of the population, which is almost one in five Australians. 17% of doctor visits are about chronic pain. Most people who experience chronic pain live with it for at least seven years. One in six chronic pain sufferers say that their pain is sometimes so bad that they want to die. Many people report that their pain interferes with their daily activities. It affects their relationships with friends and family and many people experience depression as a result of their pain. Long-term chronic pain is also associated with dementia, yet another reason why we need to address this. Pain-relieving medications are the most commonly used medication in Australia. It makes sense when you can understand how intense pain can be for some people that this is the case. Unfortunately, Prescription pain medication is often inadequate in its effect, with 64% of people in the Europe Pains survey reporting that their pain medication was at times inadequate. So people resort to a cocktail of medications or an ever-increasing dosage regime, but this has some serious issues, as some of these medications come with side effects. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs, which are the most commonly used medications for inflammation and arthritis type pains, are actually very harmful for the digestive system and can cause ulceration and blood loss. According to US mortality data, about 17,000 people die from the toxic effects of NSAIDs per year, which is more than multiple myeloma, asthma and cervical cancer, and almost equal to the death toll from AIDS. But that's not all. All types of NSAID medications increase risk of heart disease. Ibuprofen has been shown to increase risk of heart attack by 24% and diclofenac, brand name Voltaren, increases your risk of heart attack by 55% and significantly increases risk of stroke and kidney damage. For those who take this medication short term, the risk doesn't actually really apply to them. It's for those who are taking it long term and especially if it's combined with other risk factors such as high blood pressure, obesity, and a sedentary lifestyle, and stress. For those people, the risk is certainly an issue that needs to be considered. Opioid pain relief has its own issues, as this medication is addictive and has been responsible for many overdose-related deaths. In the US, about 142 people die every day from accidental overdoses of prescription opioids. About 60,000 people died last year, more than the number of people who died in the Vietnam War. In the US, 50,000 doses of prescription opioids are prescribed for every 1 million people every day. In Australia, about 20,000 doses are prescribed for every 1 million people. And to give you some perspective, Australia ranks 8th among the world's top 30 users of prescription opiates. As of February this year in Australia, codeine-containing medications, which are an opiate, will no longer be available for over-the-counter use. Instead, they will require a prescription. This is a government response to the issues surrounding the addiction and the side effects of codeine use. There's some debate as to whether this will help or not, as it may potentially drive the addiction underground or lead to doctor shopping, as there isn't really a proper use of the tracking system which has previously been a voluntary system for a few years now. So, yeah, it's a bit of an issue. And not only does pain take a toll on a person's health, it's also a costly issue. In 2011, it was estimated that the total cost of chronic pain in Australia to the country was about $40 billion per year, which is more than cancer, cardiovascular disease and diabetes combined. The cost of pain to an individual has doubled since 2009 to now, going from $231 to $473 Australian dollars per month. The vicious trap that occurs is that people are unable to work due to their pain and so they can't afford the holistic care that is required to manage their pain successfully and so eventually they will rely solely on painkillers and as this is inadequate by itself, the person has to take more and more which is harming themselves further and running the risk of overdose. So let's look a little bit deeper into chronic pain, which will actually help us to understand it a bit more. 
Most people understand pain to be a symptom of a disease, but chronic pain is actually a disease in itself, a healthcare problem in its own right, and it needs a lot more understanding and respect. A lot of the time, pain, even chronic pain, is a message to us that something is wrong, such as a tumour, an injury, an infection or inflammation. But in 10% of the cases, pain can persist or exist when no identifiable cause is there. This type of chronic pain can start in anyone, young or old, and can be incredibly debilitating. The term allodynia is used when someone experiences pain to a normally innocent stimulus. If I ran a feather down the arm of someone with allodynia, it would feel like I was using a knife instead. Even the sensation of clothing on their skin can cause them pain. There is really very little understanding of why this happens. And in people with chronic pain, the message of what causes the pain grows increasingly. So eventually a smaller and smaller stimulus is required for the brain to send out those messages of pain. As a naturopath, it's important to understand that everyone is different and this impacts on our ways that we treat them. In the case of pain, everyone has different types of pain and degrees of pain and many different factors that feed into it. Interestingly, there are some people who have been shown not to experience pain despite having found spinal nerve root compression or displacement. This actually occurs in about 4 to 17% of people. So it really goes to show how different everyone is and also how complex those danger signals are that affect the pain signaling. So let's talk about pain messaging. Whether it's acute or chronic pain, we experience it via the same mechanism in the body. So we have these specialized danger receptors throughout our body, the majority of which are called nociceptors. These are located in almost every tissue in the body. They can be stimulated by pressure, by change in temperature or by chemical changes. And these have the job of sending a message to the brain, which is the message that results in ouch. If these are stimulated, you get a various type of reaction that occurs. Vasoconstriction, constriction of your blood vessels, a reflex muscle spasm, which essentially protects the area from being moved or moves the area away from the, the actual problem and various types of subtler reactions, which are called autonomic concomitants. So you might recognize these if you've ever started to sweat or salivate when you've hurt yourself. And of course, there's the actual sensation of pain. So this sensation doesn't actually occur in the affected area. However, it occurs in our brain. So when someone says that pain is in the mind, they're actually right. But that doesn't mean that someone doesn't feel pain, but rather that the brain is where the reactions are taking place. The brain sends messages back to the area, which ignites an inflammatory response. And then through this, we get a release of various inflammatory chemicals, such as interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, and prostaglandin-2. For some people, this inflammatory reaction can be out of balance and it plays a really big role in the degree of pain that is experienced, as well as how long it goes on for. It's as a result of all of these that pain occurs. So a couple of things to remember. One, pain is felt in the brain, not the affected area. And two, the inflammatory response determines the degree of the pain. So therefore, if we can mediate the signals to the brain by increasing or decreasing inflammation, pain can be made worse or better. And this is where the term chronic inflammation comes in. And this issue is when the inflammatory chemicals are not being shut off effectively. So if we remember that chronic pain is something that goes on for longer than it should after the initial injury or trigger has gone, we'll naturally be wondering why this is happening. Unfortunately, there is no one reason. There is usually a combination of factors. Inflammation has a really big role, but there are also a lot of reasons that feed into this being out of balance as well. So let's break these into categories and have a bit of a deeper look. For diet and lifestyle, this is a really big one for naturopaths and, and nutritionists that we often talk about. One of the things that can happen is that people would be eating an imbalance of their omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. 
so omega-3 is our natural anti-inflammatory food and we get this from things like you know seafood and, and of course fish uh, as well as walnuts and some degree avocados and um, some other nuts and seeds um, and it, we get it in various types that eventually need to be converted to its end stage which is referred to as DHA and to do this we need to have a, a huge amount of zinc and B vitamins and magnesium and all other sorts of antioxidants so we can have issues with having imbalances in this because of a few reasons one can be because we're not getting enough of the omega-3 in the first place Another can be because we don't have enough of the nutrients that we need to actually convert it to its end stage, which can be a problem if you are eating uh, an out-of-balance vegetarian or vegan diet and you're eating, not eating enough zinc to convert your other fats down to this end stage omega-3. And another reason can be if you're eating too much omega-6 fatty acid in relation to your omega-3 fatty acid. And so the omega-6 is what we tend to get from mostly vegetables, uh, vegetable fats, uh, other nuts and seeds and vegetable oils and also some, some meats as well, particularly those that are, have been fed on grains because that changes the fat profile of the meat. And so what we're experiencing in Australia and most Western countries is that we have a higher ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, whereas instead of having something like a, a 4 to 1 or a 1 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, we're experiencing more along the lines of a, meat, of a, a 14 to 1 or a 20 to 1 ratio. So you can obviously tell that's quite out, out of balance. And so because we've got too much omega-6 to omega-3, we would experience out of balance inflammation levels. So in order to reduce that, we need to increase our omega-3 make sure we're getting the cofactors and also reduce our omega-6 content. Another big thing to talk about in regards to ways that your diet can be affecting your inflammation is food intolerances. Now, food intolerances can be in a reaction to pretty much any food, but the tricky thing about food intolerances is that there's not really any specific way to test for it because um, there are IgG tests, there are IgE tests, which are the ones that you would most commonly have had done with your immunologist, which would, you know, the scratch tests. But the thing with that is that IgE tests are testing for um, like a, a true allergy, you know, like a, you get a rash, that sort of thing. Those are actually very rare. Whereas IgG or IgA or even chemical intolerances are a lot more subtle and, and actually hard to identify. So there's a variety of testing that can be done. However, it is a little bit more controversial as to whether that's actually accurate or not. In clinic, I do offer IgG tests because I find that it's helpful and it's a really good place to start. But the gold standard is actually an elimination diet. So this would be where you're cutting your diet down into a really limited range of foods that are considered to be the low reactive foods. And then from there, um, you gradually reintroduce one food at a time of the most common intolerance foods. So these sorts of foods would be things like wheat, dairy, eggs, peanuts, soy, citrus, and other nuts. In regards to wheat, um, it is always a good idea that if you've ever identified that you feel a bit reactive to wheat, to actually get screened for celiac disease first before cutting it out of your diet, because if you're intolerant to wheat, um, you might be able to handle a little bit, whereas if you've got celiac disease, that's a whole different ball game. That means that you can't handle any amounts of gluten at all, and so the amount that you need to be strict with your diet really is determined by the way that you're reactive to that. So you need to be getting yourself tested for uh, I usually say start with the gene test for celiac disease 
and then if that comes back as positive then you want to be testing for the antibodies and then that would need to be confirmed with a, bi a small intestinal biopsy. However the antibodies in the biopsy will only come back as positive if you've actually been consuming gluten or wheat. So for those people who do want to cut out wheat from their diet and then they want to check for celiac disease later on it can be really um, hard for them to then go back and actually start to reintroduce the food. So essentially what's happening when we're eating something that we're intolerant to is we're getting an activation of what's called our innate as well as our adaptive immune pathways. And so when these immune systems are triggered, we get a release of various inflammatory chemicals and uh, very like cytokines, leukotrienes and prostaglandins. And these will result in inflammation in the gut. And so you've got to remember that in the gut, this is one of our biggest immune areas. And so this can have a really big effect on our immune system overall, leading to that inflammation. The inflammation that's caused by food intolerances can cause a pretty broad range of symptoms. So you might be experiencing it in the in terms of chronic pain and inflammation, but it can actually express in a lot of different ways. So for instance, migraines or headaches, you might experience brain fog and difficulty concentrating, fatigue, depression, mood changes as well, um, skin problems. So that could be eczema, psoriasis, acne, anything along those lines, even just general rashes. You can get actual issues with your immune system where you're more prone to getting colds and flus, or you might be getting more allergies. You might get sinus congestion, that sort of thing. Um, but you can also get quite a lot of digestive type symptoms too, such as bloating and um, a lot of gas or pain, diarrhea or constipation, reflux, any of those things. So essentially what it comes down to is that, you know, you might be putting up with symptoms that you don't have to because what's actually triggering it is a food intolerance. Another thing is that food intolerances can co contribute towards difficulty losing weight. So if you're doing everything that you should be to lose weight and you just can't, then you know it might be worthwhile considering that you might be inflamed as a result of a food intolerance. The tricky thing about identifying it is that food intolerances don't just give you that immediate symptom. It can take you know 48 hours up to 72 hours to actually get an expression of your symptoms. And so that's why you need to be a bit of a detective and actually analyze your symptoms in relation to your diet over the last few days. And that usually entails doing a symptom diet diary where you're actually writing down everything that you've eaten in the time as well as all your symptoms that you've experienced. And then you can look back over it and try and identify patterns. But again, doing the elimination diet is one of the best ways to actually identify your own food intolerances. Most of the times when you're testing for IgG proteins, you're looking at the reaction to the protein within the food, which in the case of dairy, for instance, is casein. A lot of people will think, I'm going to go to lactose-free milk, but what you're actually reacting to is the protein, in which case lactose-free milk might only reduce a small portion of your symptoms for you. So the protein is a big issue for a lot of people, but sometimes you can also be reacting to different chemicals within the foods. A common one that I tend to see is that people are reacting to amines or histamines within the food. And so these chemicals can cause an inflammation issue as well. Histamine is a neurotransmitter and a chemical within the body that acts on the immune system. And a lot of people know about it in its way that it acts in allergies and hay fever, but it actually does quite a lot of different things. It feeds into estrogen issues and it feeds into chronic inflammation. And it's also, as I said, a neurotransmitter. So imbalances in histamine levels can definitely affect your mood. Histamine is contained in basically any food that has a big bacterial involvement in it. So that's all your fermented foods. It's also aged foods, so things that have been left to sit out or leftovers. And these foods aren't necessarily unhealthy. In fact, I often advocate the use of fermented foods because of all the good bacteria as a source of gut bugs. But if you have issues with histamine, these things have to go. And we've also got other foods that contain histamine, such as your vinegars and alcohol, and then you've got histamine activators like 
avocado, chocolate, spinach, tomato, eggplant. So it's actually a really tricky diet to follow, but for a lot of people, it actually promotes some healing. And this can be relevant for people with chronic pain, but I also find that it's relevant for people with hormonal issues, in particular, um, estrogen dominant issues like fibroids and endometriosis. So it's definitely something to consider. Now, the next point is what is considered to be an anti-inflammatory diet and basically it's the opposite of what we call the sad diet now this could be the standard australian diet or the standard american diet and it's the typical diet that is consumed in western culture which is lots of refined grains and carbohydrates minimal vegetables minimal good fats high intake of processed fats and oils that's that omega-6 imbalance that we were talking about before, as well as your hydrogenated vegetable oils, which are even worse, and really high intake of protein that's not actually a healthy type of protein, like your grass-fed meats or your omega-3 rich proteins. So what we want to do is actually go the opposite of that, and that's only having moderate protein and making sure that protein is at a good source or from the vegetables and having good fats, having lots and lots of veggies, particularly your brightly colored veggies. So, you know, they're saying eat a rainbow every day. That's what you want to be doing to have an anti-inflammatory diet. So all your beautiful red and purple, orange and yellow and green foods, they all contain a broad variety of phytonutrients which all have different healing properties. So the more variety of vegetables and fruit you can get into your diet, the better, with an emphasis on the vegetables. And you want to really minimize your intake of refined carbohydrates and refined grains. I don't think that everyone needs to cut out grains. In fact, some people do really well on them. But you want to make sure that as much as possible, they are in an unrefined form. So whole, whole grains, wherever you can. And essentially what that means is that if you can identify what that grain is by looking at it, then you know it's a whole grain. And so that would mean that you know you have to cook it yourself and you have to do a bit of work for it, but your body's really gonna thank you for it. Now let's talk about sleep. Sleep is a really, really big one when it comes to chronic pain and a lot of people experience sleep issues. I've done a podcast in the past about sleep issues, so if you want to go back and have a look at that, that might be helpful for you if sleep is an issue for you. Uh, but sleep definitely has a connection with chronic pain, and it goes both ways. You know, if you don't sleep well, pain will feel worse, and if you have pain, it can affect your sleep. There were some studies done about 20 or 30 years ago where they looked at solely improving sleep as a way to deal with their pain. So it goes to show how powerful improving your sleep levels are. I'll also quickly touch on exercise. Now, I'll go into this in more detail later on, as I will with a bit more detail about diet again. But with exercise, essentially you do wanna exercise and having low levels or non-existent levels of exercise can actually worsen chronic pain. However, it goes the other way too, you know, if you're over-exercising, that can actually cause you to get burnt out, and so your injuries don't repair adequately. This is relevant, you know, if you're a marathoner and you're training all throughout the year, you need to be exercising in seasons, not constantly. So if you have chronic pain and the injury has healed, you know, it's good to actually exercise, but you've also got to want to make sure that you go just to that point of pain because you don't want to also affect your nervous signaling either. So that's diet and lifestyle. Let's talk about ways that your biological makeup can actually affect your levels of pain and inflammation. So the first thing that I want to mention is genetics. Now we have so many genes, but one of the genes that's a bit of a hype at the moment is something called MTHFR. Essentially, what this is, it's a gene that controls the production of an enzyme that's involved in a process in the liver that deals with various systems involving your B vitamins, in particular, 
folate or vitamin B9 and vitamin as well as vitamin B12 and a few other things as well and that makes everything convert down to this end stage chemical called SAME and this works as a neurotransmitter it controls inflammation it controls um, your immune system and your hormones and it affects liver health and digestive health and all sorts of things it can actually feed into so it has a pretty broad range of effect but this particular gene mthfr it only is one drop in the ocean of many types of genes so essentially what i mean is that you know it's actually important to look at but with the con context that there are a lot of other genes that we don't know quite as much about that can be affecting things as well and you know your genes do not define you so there's a term called epigenetics where it's how much your diet and your lifestyle can actually influence the expression of your genes and what i say is that epigenetics trumps genetics every time so you can do so much to actually influence these processes which is a really good thing but you know you've got to identify if you do have an issue with this gene and then you actually can specifically um, you know make changes to adjust for that so with mthfr there are two main types of genes that you can have um, issues with and that's your c677t and your a1298c and so you can have one or two or no copies of these if you've got the c677t gene this tends to be more problematic than the a1298 so i'll just mention that specifically i have written more detail about this gene for both of these genes and other genes on my blog so if you do a bit of a, a search on my blog for this gene then you'll find more details but what happens is if you've got an an issue with the gene like say it comes back as having two copies and that means you have a 70% loss of function of this enzyme process this is present in approximately 20% of the population if you only have one of the gene of the c677 then you've got a 40% loss of function and this is present in about 45% of the population if you've got one copy of both of the genes then that also affects you quite strongly as well Another thing that can affect you in terms of your biological makeup is your history of pain. So this affects you in the way that we were talking about that story about the man that got bitten by the snake. You know, it affects your pain response because of the context. So your brain is likely to send out a stronger danger signal because it remembers these things. Also things like your biochemistry and pathology will have a big effect and in, in regards to that, that can be things like having certain nutritional deficiencies, it can be having an immune imbalance, it can be having hormonal imbalances which I will again go into more in a little bit, it can also be being more acidic and it can also be having an increased tendency to certain inflammatory white blood cells for instance or having a family history or a personal tendency towards being more autoimmune. Your neurotransmitters can have a big impact as well. Specifically, lower levels of serotonin can make you more inclined to pain conditions such as fibromyalgia, which is a whole nother podcast. Now, if you've ever been to a naturopath before or ever heard them talk about pretty much anything, then there's a good chance that you've heard how passionate that naturopaths can get about gut health. And that's my next point, is the gut. And the gut health is linked to the rest of our body in many different ways. And pain and inflammation is no exception to this. So it's really important to address gut health when we're looking at chronic pain issues. Now, there's a few different areas that we want to specifically address in regards to this. One is the imbalance of the good and the bad bacteria in the digestive system, a term we use to describe this as dysbiosis. So this can be an imbalance in your bacteria levels. You might not have enough good bugs because you haven't been feeding them or you might have been taking medications, specifically antibiotics, over a period of time or a really strong one and that's actually killed off a lot of your gut bugs. You might have an imbalance within your own good gut bugs as well and that can be related to diet and medication use too. 
but that can cause its own problems. You might have a specific overgrowth of a bacteria that can cause some problems. You might have an overgrowth of candida. You might have parasites. Parasites can come in all sorts of forms and actually they're not as rare as some might think in Western society. Blastocystis hominis is a parasite that can actually cause problems for a lot of people but that specifically is a bit of a controversial one because it can also appear in certain people and not cause any symptoms. So that brings me to the next point about the health of the gut overall being one of the most important things. So what we call the, the health of the terrain and that's the, the lining of the digestive system that's really important. So if you have something called leaky gut or intestinal permeability then food proteins or bacterial endotoxins are more likely to slip through into the bloodstream and create this inflammatory response. So the lining of the digestive system should be essentially like tiny little hairs that are really, really closely junctioned together. But if these junctions can open up a little bit too wide, then these molecules that I was just talking about can actually slip through. And so the damage to the gut lining caused by eating a poor diet or having dysbiosis or medication use or having food intolerances long term, that can actually cause these junctions to get wider. And so the problem is then going to continue itself and get worse over time. In order to heal, usually what we look at doing is repairing the lining of, of the digestive system specifically with herbs and nutrients. For example, aloe vera, slippery elm, glutamine potentially can be helpful, deglycorized licorice, and also looking at controlling the bacteria balance. As we were talking about earlier, food intolerances and allergies can cause chronic inflammation and pain. And one of the main ways they do this is by affecting our digestive health. So what we want to do is, is go and actually identify these food intolerances and then cutting, cut them out of the diet so that our gut has a better chance to heal. So the protocol I usually recommend is identify food intolerances and cut them out of your diet. Go on a gut repair program of some form, which is usually something that a practitioner can help you with. And I find that it's different for everyone because everyone has different symptoms. And then you will be continuing to avoid those intolerant foods for anywhere between three to six months while you're working on healing your gut in the meantime. And then you can reintroduce those foods and actually see how you're going. Again, one at a time, like you would with an elimination diet. And you may find that having healed the gut, that those foods don't cause you a problem anymore. And hopefully throughout that process, you'll also notice a significant decrease in any other symptoms that are caused by these things, such as your chronic pain. Now, the next thing that can be a big issue is hormonal health. So hormones definitely have a role when it comes to chronic pain and inflammation. So for women, after menopause, we have a reduced level of, stero of our steroid hormones. This has actually been associated with a pro-inflammatory state. Our testosterone, progesterone and estrogens in their natural forms are actually anti-inflammatory. Additionally, we also have hormonal receptors on our immune cells and so imbalances and fluctuations in our hormones can actually cause inflammation. Many women will notice changes in pain levels throughout their cycle if they've got some issues with their cycle and some women find that after menopause or for men after andropause, which is when the testosterone starts to decline roughly after about 40 years of age, pain issues can become more prevalent at that time. So what do we know? We know that low levels of estrogen are associated with osteoarthritis. We know that low levels of testosterone or DHEA, which is a hormone that's related to testosterone, but also related to cortisol. These, these low levels can actually cause our repair and regeneration to be reduced. And they are also associated with increased inflammation. We also know that Progesterone levels uh, can be affected by chronic stress and inflammation because progesterone converts to cortisol, which is an anti-inflammatory hormone that's involved with stress. And so conversely, if you are requiring a lot of cortisol, you can experience progesterone deficiency symptoms. 
and that can be a problem because that causes issues with your other sorts of hormones now some studies have shown that progesterone can be helpful for nerve type pain and so if you have low levels of progesterone and you're experiencing nerve pain it might be worthwhile considering boosting it with with herbs and nutrients depending on what stage of your life or what your hormones are actually at or even talking to your doctor about using some uh, biologically identical hormones thyroid problems in themselves can cause a big variety of symptoms this includes depression fatigue insomnia weight issues and pain and a lot of the time you know if you're thinking about thyroid issues you probably just think about fatigue and weight but many physicians actually forget that you can also experience something called thyroid myalgia or soreness which is a result of thyroid problems the thyroid hormones are involved in a lot of different aspects of the body and thyroid problems often go undetected because of flaws in the diagnosis system. When you go to a doctor, most commonly you will get your thyroid checked with a simple marker called TSH. But this isn't always enough and for a lot of people with chronic pain or for those who have been diagnosed specifically with fibromyalgia, it may not have been detected properly. It's really common for women to have issues with their thyroid and it's commonly missed by GPs because of the issue with the screening that's done. And that is not so saying that the GPs don't understand it properly, but it's because of the regulations that are put on the GPs in regards to what is considered to be over-testing. You know, even some specialists don't pick up on some subtler imbalances. And the issue that I see is that you can have such a broad range of what's considered to be normal for thyroid hormones but it may not be normal for you the other issue is that when you're just getting the tsh tested that could be normal but you could have other imbalances going on such as thyroid antibodies or an issue with conversion of of t4 to t3 or high levels of reverse t3 feeding into these problems too so it can be worthwhile if you suspect thyroid is an issue paying for these tests yourself. Thyroid problems can also cause other symptoms such as IBS, constipation, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and dysbiosis. It's a big contributor to a lot of chronic pain syndromes. So how do we manage our hormones? Well, this involves reducing the impact of stress keeping our inflammation levels directly under control with our diet which can be you know cutting out sugar in particular but also making sure that we're getting the right building blocks for making our hormones we need to have good quality protein and fat and we need to have enough of the right vitamins and minerals that are the building blocks for our hormones specifically zinc magnesium selenium iodine iron and our b vitamins that's uh, just to name a few <laughs> so if you think that you've got issues with your hormones definitely talk to your practitioner about it or someone who's enlightened about the subtler imbalances that can occur within your hormones as well so let's talk about the ways that your environment can infect can affect chronic pain well this can be so many different things so one of the ways that I see a lot in clinic working as a massage therapist and working alongside osteopaths is that your posture can have a really big impact. But this could be so many different variations within that too. And it could be bad posture from a structural cause, such as having one leg shorter than the other, or it could be related to your work, or it could just be a bad habit. So, you know, people who have too much phone use end up with getting a lot of neck pain. People who do too much driving or who, people who sit on their wallet can get imbalances in their pelvis and their spine, which can contribute towards back pain. And, you know, if your posture is bad, just making small changes in your posture can have a really big impact on pain levels. Your work can definitely affect your pain levels and this could be many different ways. It can be because your work is putting you in a stressful situation and that can feed into your other hormonal imbalances and your inflammation levels. But it can also be affecting your ability to repair by impairing your sleep and your diet. 
it can like I said affect your posture because of what posture that you actually have to have or it can also affect you in the way that it's causing you to do repetitive movements all the time depending on the nature of your work the other thing that can affect you with your environment is chemical exposure this could be so many different things but it could be heavy metals such as lead or arsenic or cadmium or mercury which you can be exposed to from things like your work environment people who work um, with these a lot of the time can be linked with having issues with chronic pain you might have mercury being leached out of fillings or you might actually be exposed to heavy metals through your your house or your land depending on where you live as well or how old your house is if you have lead paint so that's a whole nother topic to go into as well um, but that can certainly have a big issue on affecting your other mineral health and also causing direct symptoms themselves. The other thing that can cause some issues is exposure to xenoestrogens. Now these are chemicals that strongly mimic your natural estrogen but in a bad way and these are sourced from all sorts of things but in particular plastics and certain beauty and cleaning products in, in your house and your lifestyle as well. The other thing can be halides, which is a group of um, chemicals that interfere with your iodine levels. And this can be, you know, chlorine or chloride through water sources or fluoride can do it too, depending on the degree that you have in your sensitivity. Bromides through fire retardants. So it's all sorts of things along those lines. And the other one that's a biggie is medications. Now this could be a quite a broad topic but I want to specifically mention that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can actually feed into chronic pain they also have a lot of side effects so some people know about the way that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can cause stomach problems but they actually have a lot of other things that they can do too they can raise your blood pressure they can contribute towards kidney problems and heart problems and they can also cause rashes as well i think that you know they're really helpful in the short term because no one should have to put up with pain but long term they can actually prolong the problem and the, and cause many side effects one of our key naturopathic philosophies when we're treating anything is to give the body what it needs to heal and remove obstacles to cure. Unfortunately, NSAIDs are a barrier in chronic pain and that's because they're actually both of those issues. They're taking away what you need to heal and they're actually a barrier to heal as well. So what they do is they, they're depleting your vitamin C level and that's really important for healthy levels of collagen repair and because you need vitamin c for your repair of your collagen so that people have been shown to have worse levels of pain after taking NSAIDs for longer so it actually perpetuates the problem so the very thing that we're using to reduce pain it actually can be impeding the process of healing The other thing that can be a bit of an issue, and I fit this into the environment category, is the overuse of surgery. Now, I definitely think that surgery is important. Um, you know, it's life-saving, etc. But many people don't understand the risks of surgery, specifically back surgery. It's very risky, and for some people it can worsen pain, and for others the pain can return just as intensely. So some statistics to elaborate on this is that only 26% of those who undergo back surgery return to work, which is bad enough, but worse when you compare it to the opposite, which is 67% of those that don't return to work. Generally, there's also a really high incidence of pain that persists after surgery, whether it's major or minor. And this incidence of post-surgical pain is as high as 25% of those who have undergone surgery. And it's, just to clarify, it's not due to an error in the surgery, but rather it's a response to the process it's, itself. So it goes to show that, you know, you want to try and do the least harmful or least intense form of intervention first, wherever you can, and also to get a second opinion.
I've spoken to general um, physios and osteopaths before and it does seem to be that some people are actually pressured into getting back surgery as a first-line treatment when there can be so many other things that can be done for them such as your, your physical therapies or looking at your diet and your lifestyle and pain um, counseling as well so all of these things need to be done first before reverting to surgery as an option I'll also talk about electromagnetic radiation, which, you know, it's a little bit controversial. Um, and that's probably because not everyone is susceptible to this, but some are and it can disrupt their healing processes. Electromagnetic radiation can be generated by a wireless device or appliances such as microwaves. And, you know, microwaves is a big one, but to a certain extent, cell towers and power lines. So the people who are sensitive to it are classed as being electrosensitive. And the symptoms of electromagnetic radiation for those who are sensitive has a lot of crossover with the condition fibromyalgia, which is muscle pain, fatigue, headaches, multiple allergies, frequent infections and sleep disorders. It's theorized that electromagnetic radiation can affect the immune system, leading to an increase of inflammation and then the higher prevalence of allergies and frequent infections, which perpetuates the problem. So, you know, if you think that this is an issue for you, you can make some really easy changes, such as not charging your phone in your bedroom, uh, turning off the Wi-Fi throughout the house before going to sleep, or even connecting with the earth, getting some earthing time in, for at least 15 minutes a day and also doing things like moving your bed away from the meter box or if possible changing your wireless phones to corded phones. So it seems that for most people the amount of electromagnetic radiation exposure we receive on a daily basis is generally safe and doesn't cause any symptoms but the sensitive people may need to make these changes to help themselves to feel better. It seems to be that the microwave is the biggest emitter of these electromagnetic radiations. So overall, people would benefit from not using the microwave as much or getting rid of, getting rid of it. Um, but it's mostly those who are sensitive that need to consider those other changes. There's also a blend created by Australian bushflower essences that can be helpful, and that's called the electroessence. And my final point in regards to the environment is relationships. A bad relationship can cause stress, but a good relationship with lots of support has been shown to improve recovery for those people with pain. And you know, things like relationship breakdowns can worsen pain, being single can worsen pain, and pain can also worsen your relationships. Also, I'd like to mention the importance of having a good practitioner relationship. Having a good relationship with your practitioner helps the healing processes. And I think that patient involvement is correlated with better outcomes. As a patient, you know, it's really important that you feel listened to and you need to take a collaborative approach to your treatment and any interventions need to be mutually agreed on. Personally, with my patients, I believe that I'm not steering them in the direction of treatment, rather I'm holding their hands and we're working together for them to get better. So another major point is the concept of stealth infections. This is a driver of chronic conditions and chronic pain and it's really rarely mentioned. And it actually is an infection that is commonly missed during standard medical investigations and it's also really hard to detect due to the way that these stealth infections travel and hide in the body. Stealth infections can be bacterial, parasitic and fungal. The infection can colonize within the body tissues as opposed to in the blood like most common infections and then they can be hard to detect because what they're actually doing is existing in cyst forms or they create their own biofilm or they are cell wall deficient. Sometimes they can lurk around for a really long time. And, you know, being in a cyst form, having a biofilm or being cell wall deficient means that in that infection is really very difficult to test with standard types of tests.
A common misconception that I see is that when you go for a blood test for a checkup, the doctor will screen you for everything. And, you know, so surely if you had an infection, this would show up. But that's probably just a bit of a, a misconception because there is a test name that is included in most of these common screening called a full blood count, which is where they're counting your red blood cells. But that doesn't screen for everything. It would be impossible to screen for everything at once because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different types of tests that can be done and there's many different ways that need doing and they all need different types of samples and uh, ways of collection as well. So it's just um, important to you know know what you want to test for and then seek that test out. The tests that we're looking for for stealth infections need to be done in specialty labs and quite often they need to be specifically tested for using DNA testing. So some examples of chronic infections or stealth infections that can contribute towards chronic pain would be Lyme disease, mycoplasma, Bartonella and Chlamydia pneumoniae. Now these infections are somewhat controversial because many conventional doctors don't believe that these infections specifically Lyme disease exists in Australia but there is a growing body of evidence that shows that it actually does. Personally I've had many patients who have tested positive and there is also research done by the lab that um, does most of the Lyme disease testing Australian biologics in, in Australia that shows that Lyme carrying ticks exist on deer and echidnas in Australia and have been found on important resources. Now Lyme's disease um, causes a really very varied range of symptoms but arthritic type pain in the joints that moves around and muscle soreness as well as things like numbness and tingling and brain fog are the typical symptoms for someone with later stage Lyme's disease. So if you suspect that you may have Lyme's disease what you want to do is find a Lyme competent or at least a Lyme aware practitioner who can help you to navigate testing and treatment. If you're in the area or have been exposed to ticks then and, and if you have symptoms that fit the description of Lyme's disease or if you've ever had a bullseye rash although don't be put off if you haven't because only 30% of people who have been bitten by a Lyme carrying tick get this then you want to be looking into this a little bit more. And the final point of things that contribute towards chronic pain and inflammation is, of course, the mind. There's so many ways that this can happen and this can feed into chronic pain, but we know that emotions have got a really big impact. The emotion center of the brain has been shown to be a really big amplifier of chronic pain, and people who have shown to have high activity in this area of the brain are thought to actually have higher pain levels. So for these people, relaxation techniques and mindfulness can be really helpful. Also, your life history, that can have a big impact. This can be, you know, a history of mental and physical abuse, your work history and identifying things like points of anguish or experiencing grief or, or heartbreak, all of those can affect your pain levels. Also, your thinking patterns and your attitude. So this is, you know, how you deal with situations or having a, a why me attitude or feeling like you're not able to defeat situations, you know, being a, a victim mentality. So as much as possible, it is helpful to try to maintain a positive attitude, but also to try to let go of the emotions of anger, guilt and resentment, because those will cause you to hold on to pain. So this might require you to undertake some counseling or to do some mindfulness or some meditation. Sometimes you can look at using bush flowers to help with processing certain emotions. That can be quite helpful too. So you could talk to a practitioner who's experienced with bush flowers for that. But it even can involve doing some work yourself, such as journaling or doing little rituals where you're actually letting go of certain things. 
So that's a lot of stuff that feeds into chronic pain. So you're probably wondering, well, how do we actually go about dealing with all of that? And if you're someone that experiences chronic pain, then you probably identified something from almost every category as being out of balance. So when I do my next podcast, I'm going to be talking about what we can actually do to treat the pain. But in the meantime, definitely look at getting some help from a practitioner because they're able to hold your hands in this process and and try and identify your imbalances and help you put together the jigsaw puzzle of your health that is you because everyone's different and everyone needs a different type of treatment and everyone's got different things that feed into their history as well. But what I really hope to impress on everyone is that if you've got chronic pain, if you've got chronic inflammation, then just taking medication to subdue the pain doesn't cut it and it's not going to do you any benefit long term. You want to try and get to the cause. So hopefully you've come out of this with an understanding that there's a lot of different things that can go wrong and if you can start working on those, then you're going to start chipping away at your pain levels and you'll feel much better at the end of it. So thanks again for listening. If you have the time or the inclination, please leave me a review on iTunes. It really does help. And I would also really love if you can give me any feedback as to things that you might like to hear podcasts about. If you've got anyone that you particularly want me to interview or any questions you might have, I'm always happy to answer questions in a podcast as well. So you can contact me via my social media, which is Alison Mitchell Naturopath or Alison M Naturopath. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and my website is www.naturopathnsw.com.au. So I hope everyone has a lovely day or night and I will talk to you next time. Bye.